You're listening to the One Hope Church Podcast. The following audio is from the weekly gatherings of One Hope Church in Orlando, Florida. We pray that you'll be encouraged and challenged as you listen. Well, it's good to be here. My name is Justin. If you don't know me, pastor of One Hope Church. And here's what we're going to do tonight. We're going to talk about prayer. And here's my question. What if prayer really was your greatest need? What if prayer really was your greatest need? So, parents, what if what you really needed wasn't a new parenting book with the latest techniques and all that stuff? And I'm not against that. That's good. That's helpful. But what if what you really needed was an intimate prayer life with God? So that in those moments when you're at a loss for words and how to handle a situation, you're able to pause and talk to your Father in heaven and say, God, would you give me wisdom? Would you give me a word? I don't know what to do. And what if he answered? And and all of a sudden you knew what to say. Or in, in the moment of your anger, where you're about to lose it, if you're able to just pause and say, Father, would you just give me patience and just pause? And what if you were to impart that to you and you were now able to engage with compassion and patience? Have you ever experienced that? Or maybe for you, it's like, what is this next big decision that you're facing? Or what is the greatest strategy for your business? None of those things are bad, but what if your prayer life, what was most important? That God had a plan and a path and we were able to hear him and follow him. What if God really was big enough and really did care enough about your everyday life and your everyday decisions? What if prayer was not just your greatest need, but your greatest power, your greatest asset, your greatest weapon? Now think about this. Jesus prayed, so we should pray. I don't think Jesus was just praying as a formality, as if to say, this is what you ought to do. I don't really need to do it, but this is what you ought to do. I think Jesus prayed because he needed to pray. He needed to talk to his heavenly father. And so if Jesus prayed, you and I should pray. In fact, you and I are invited into pray. We spent uh, all fall going through John 13 to 16, and Jesus was saying, what I have with the Father, union with the Father, I'm in him, he's in me, you can also have because I'm in you and you're in me. So the prayer life that Jesus had, this intimate, powerful relationship he had with God the Father, he says, you're invited in and you can have that too. Now we all know this, right? We all know that we're supposed to pray, but there's a problem. Many of us don't. You say, why is that? Paul Miller, in his excellent book, A Praying Life, diagnoses the problem well. Here's what he says in his introduction, I think. He says, American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments, production, but prayer is nothing but talking to God. It feels useless, as if we're wasting time. Every bone in our body screams, get back to work. He goes on to say, another hindrance to prayer is one of the most subtlest, but probably the most pervasive. In in the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, 
competency and wealth because we, because we can do life without God. Praying seems nice but unnecessary. Listen to this. Money can do what prayer does and it does it quicker and less time consuming. <laughs> our trust in ourselves and our talents make us structurally independent of God. As a result, exhortations to pray don't stick. Does that resonate with you? We have so much here that we often don't feel the need for prayer. We know we're supposed to pray. But I think deep down inside, all of us were longing for this kind of experience with God, that we would know His love and know His care for us, that He actually is with us and actually will speak to us and actually will lead us. And so we're going to talk about prayer today. And my hope and my call is this, that we could cultivate a life of prayer that leads to communion with God, intimacy with God, unity in the church, and faith in a watching world. But here's what I think about prayer. I think some things are better caught than taught. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever been around someone who just prays passionately. And you think, man, I want what that person has. I don't know what it is, but I want to learn to pray like that. They're so in touch. They're so in tune with God. They just love the Lord. Have you ever been around someone like that? If you're like me, that inspires you. So I want to pray like that. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at John 17, the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. And I have two goals. One is to equip us to pray by looking at not what Jesus said, but how did he pray? And I want us to sit around as if we're with the disciples, hearing Jesus pray over them. Have you ever thought about that? What does Jesus pray for the church? What is he praying for you? What's important to Jesus? And secondly, we will look at what did Jesus pray for his disciples? And this is going to help inform us on how we pray. What should we pray for? And it's also going to serve, this sermon will serve as kind of a bridge from our last series in John 13 to 16 and our next series as we begin to look at the story of the church then and now. And in between those two series is John 17, is the prayer of Jesus. And prayer is the foundation for what we see playing out in the story of church. Jesus' very prayers for his church. And since it was Jesus praying, we think probably his prayers are going to be answered, right? If anyone's prayers would be answered, you think it would be Jesus. So we're going to see what does he pray. I'm going to share some stories along the way, and then we're going to pray as a church. So we'll be in John 17. You can turn there in your Bibles. Um, let me begin by praying for us. And here's what I want to do. I want to pray John 17 over you. And I want, I'm, just, I'm going to read it. I'm going to pray it over you. And I just want you to sit there. You can close your eyes. You can open your hands if you want. And just imagine you're sitting there with the disciples. And this is Jesus praying over you. So church, receive Jesus's prayer for you. And we know this real quick because 1720 here, he says, I don't pray for these only, the disciples, but all who will believe in me through their word. So this is Jesus's prayer for you. So let's receive Jesus's prayer. Verse, John 17 here, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken... He lifted his eyes to heaven and he said this, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. 
I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and the things I speak in the world, I speak these things in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and they may be one, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I may know to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Amen. This is Jesus' prayer for his church. Now, my, my first point is really simple, and I've already said it. Jesus prayed. And if Jesus prayed, we need to pray. And as we look at the Gospels, Jesus prayed often. He prayed spontaneous prayer. He prayed for healings. He gave thanks for the bread um, before feeding the 5,000. He was praying all throughout his day. But he also had scheduled time of prayer. On one occasion, he prays all night, praying before he chooses the 12 apostles. And so as we look to how Jesus prayed, we see that he prayed spontaneously, he prayed in scheduled prayer. And so for our own prayer lives, we ought to do the same. And so for you, it is a good thing to schedule time to pray throughout your day. Amen? It's the same as like dating your wife or uh, your significant other. You have to take time to spend with them. And so it's the same with God. And so maybe that, for you that's meal times. That's often an easy time to pray. Maybe it's first thing in the morning or last thing at night. The point is, this is a step that we need to choose to take, even if it's just five minutes starting out, to pray, to talk to God. So I'd invite you to have both scheduled 
prayer and spontaneous prayer as you begin to grow in your prayer life. And maybe you say, well, I don't know what to pray. Well, we have God's Word. You could open up John 17 and you could pray John 17. There's other recorded prayers in the New Testament and the epistles and other places. Or you could pray the Psalms. This is a great way to learn to pray. You pray them, you personalize them, you make them first person. They give you words to pray. And so as we look at how did Jesus pray, this is how he prayed. He had spontaneous prayer, he had scheduled prayer. So let me just share a story uh, about an answered prayer here. This is from Paul, Paul Miller's book, Again, A Praying Life, which if you haven't read, it's a really fantastic book uh, to learn how to pray. And here's what he says in his opening chapter. It says, I was camping, I was camping, I was camping for the weekend in the endless mountains of Pennsylvania with five of our six kids. My wife, Jill, was at home with her eight-year-old daughter, Kim. After a disastrous camping experience the summer before, Jill was happy to stay home. She said she was giving up camping for Lent. I was walking down from our campsite to our, Dar- our Dodge Caravan when I noticed our 14-year-old daughter, Ashley, was standing in front of the van, tense and upset. When I asked her what was wrong, she said, I lost my contact lens. It's gone. I looked down with her at the forest floor covered with leaves and twigs. There were a million little crevices for the lens to fall into and disappear. I said, Ashley, don't move. Let's pray. But before I could pray, she burst into tears. What good does it do? I've prayed for Kim to speak, and she isn't speaking. Kim is her younger sister. Kim struggles with autism and developmental delay, and because of her weak fine motor skills and problems with motor planning, she's also mute. Prayer was no mere formality for Ashley. She had taken God at his word and asked that he would let Kim speak, but nothing happened. Kim's muteness was a testimony to a silent God. Prayer, it seemed, doesn't work. I needed help when Ashley burst into tears in front of our minivan. I was frozen, caught between her doubts and my own. I had no idea that she'd been praying for Kim to speak. And what made Ashley's tears so disturbing was that she was right. God had not answered her prayers. Kim was still mute. I was fearful for my daughter's faith and my own. I did not know what to do. Would I make the problem worse by praying? If we prayed and couldn't find the contact, it would just confirm Ashley's growing unbelief. I needed help. I had little confidence God would do anything, but I prayed silently, Father, this would be a really good time for you to come through. You've got to hear this prayer for the sake of Ashley. Then I prayed aloud with Ashley, Father, help us to find this contact. When I finished, we bent down to look through the dirt and twigs, and there, sitting on a leaf, was the missing lens. Prayer made a difference after all. Now, Was this some crazy, miraculous answer to prayer? This was a very simple, mundane thing that any of us could pray for. But you probably resonate with Ashley, right? I pray it doesn't seem like God answers. And so we struggle with that. And so this is why it's so important. I shared last week that we want to be telling stories. It's so important to tell stories of how God has answered prayers. That's why I'm sharing this story with you. Maybe in your own life, it's important to write down how, what have I been praying for and how has God answered these prayers? So that we can go back in those times when it seems like God isn't answering and be reminded that God does answer prayer. Okay? So this is the first thing. We should pray. Jesus prayed. We should pray. We should pray. We should schedule it. And we should have spontaneous prayers. Now, how did Jesus pray? So if you were, as I was reading that, if you read through John 17, you know, we might think that prayer is mostly asking God to do things, right? But in all of John 17, in those 26 verses, Jesus only asks for things explicitly a couple times. Much of the prayer is just Jesus talking to God the Father. 
telling him what's true, what has happened, reminding him who he is, what has happened with the disciples, and reasoning with God about why he should answer his prayers. And so it's really interesting. It's kind of a model for us. Again, this is Jesus's longest recording prayer of what prayer looks like. It's not just asking God, it's having a conversation with him. So for example, if we look at John 17, 7, here's Jesus praying. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and I've come to know in truth that I came from you. And they have believed that you sent me. Okay, he's just telling God what has happened. Here's what's happened, Lord. I am praying for them. Here's what I'm praying for. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. It's just telling God what's true. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Now here's my ask. Holy Father, keep them. In your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So here, as we look at how Jesus prayed, we see he's not just asking for things. He's talking to God. He's having a conversation with God. He's telling him what's true, what has happened, who you are, reasoning with him. Answer these prayers based on these truths, based on who you are. But we also see that Jesus is telling God the Father his desires. Look at verse 24. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. And so part of our prayer life, again, is saying, God, here's what I'd really love to see. And God is pleased to hear those things from us. And so all I'm saying here is cultivating a prayer life is having this continual conversation with God. It's not just asking him for things. It's a conversation with him, an ongoing conversation with him. And so Jesus is praying for them, but he's also teaching them how to pray by praying in front of them. Again, I think prayer is perhaps better caught than taught, okay? So the disciples for years heard Jesus pray, and we have some of, their, some of the apostles' prayers recorded in the book of Acts and in the epistles. And so those are helpful, again, as we learn how to pray. All right, so what did Jesus actually pray for then? Let's talk about that. What did he pray for his disciples? What did he actually ask for? Now, let me say, I am not going to do John 17 justice at all, okay? We could do a whole series on John 17 and all the buried treasure that's in this text, and all the things that Jesus says. Uh, a lot of it's referring back to John 13 to 16, where Jesus is teaching and demonstrating on this unity, this union that we have with God, that, that Jesus is inviting us into this kind of relationship. D.A. Carson says that the prayer in John 17, in some respects, is a summary of the entire fourth gospel to this point. Okay, so there's a lot of things we're not going to talk about. What I do want to look at is what does Jesus actually ask for? Okay, what is Jesus actually asking the Father to do? And I'll tell you, here's four things that I see he's asking for, and then we'll just kind of uh, briefly look at them. Four things Jesus prays for. The glory of God, protection and preservation of his followers, unity in the church that leads to faith in a watching world, and complete unity in the church that the world may know the love of Christ. So let's look at what Jesus prays for. John 17, 1. It says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Verse 5, And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is praying for God to be glorified. We say, yes, of course. Now, here's what's interesting. Jesus says, glorify the Son. And in the Old Testament, God says, I will give glory to no one else but, but God. So this is kind of a subtle uh, indication of Jesus' deity. He's saying, glorify me, glorify God, glorify your son. But what's the reason? That I may glorify you. And what is this glorification that's about to happen? Well, it's his death and his resurrection. 
right? He's about to be in the presence of God again. Verse 5, glorify me in your presence. So Jesus is praying for God's glory. The second thing he prays for is to protect and preserve his followers. 1711, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And verse 17, sanctify them or set them apart in the truth. Your word is true. So the first thing he says is keep them in your name. Keep them in the name of Jesus. Preserve their union with me. Keep them following me. That's his biggest prayer. Keep them in my name, in the name you've given me, in the name of Jesus, in relationship with him. The second thing he prays is keep us from the evil one. Jesus knows very acutely that we are in a spiritual war and we need protection from the enemy. He knows the power of prayer. And if you and I, if we understood the power of prayer as a weapon against the spiritual forces of darkness, I think we would pray a lot more. This is one of the things in Ephesians 6 that we see is one of the offensive weapons we have against the enemy, that we would be praying. So Jesus is praying for our protection against the evil one. Now, this doesn't mean that we're never going to be harmed by Satan and demons, right? We all have experienced that in our life. What it means is that we're not going to lose our faith ultimately. We're not going to walk away from God's goodness and God's character. That's the protection that Jesus has for us, that he will preserve us. And the last thing he prays for here is to sanctify us, to set us apart by the truth. And we need to discern the truth from error in our day, maybe more than ever. And so we are set apart, sanctified by the truth. And what he says here is is, is interesting. Uh, The truth isn't an adjective to God's word. It's a noun. In other words, he's saying God's words are true because they come from God. In other words, what God says is true. It's the standard of truth. And in our day, when there's so much relativism and what is truth, we need to believe that the word of God is truth. And that's how we will stay true to the course and the calling and our faithfulness to who God is. And so praying that God would keep and protect and sanctify us really leads to his next prayer, his third request in verse 20 and 21. I don't ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, Listen to this, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This oneness of the church that Jesus is praying for is to model and look like the very oneness that's in the Trinity itself. One God, three persons. This is his prayer. This is his calling for us as the church. This kind of unity, uh, brotherly love, forgiveness um, that leads to faith in a watching world. Do you think about that? If we were living in this kind of unity, Jesus says that the world would see this and they would believe that Jesus sent was sent by God. So we got to step back, I think, in the American church in particular and say, how are we, how are we doing at this? Because I see a lot of church divisions a lot of denominational splits, factions, and favorites, and fanfare. And the cost is that our culture doesn't look at the church as anything to be emulated, and especially not to inspire them to believe in Jesus. We have this luxury of theological squabbles and popularity contest. Do you know where the church is most unified? Where it's most persecuted? And so I think we have to do better. Here at One Hope Church, 
being unified around a common cause, a common purpose, one God, one spirit, one baptism, one faith, Ephesians 4. And then globally as the church, what does it look like for us to not be so about what one hope or so about a particular denomination, but how do we join and partner with other churches in our area that the world may see, wow, that there's something there and would inspire them to believe that Jesus came from God. And the fourth thing he prays here, this is really the end, the goal of it all. Look at 20, uh, verse 22 and 23. The glory you have given me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one or completely one, so that, again, so that what? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. This perfect unity that exists in the Trinity. He's praying for that, right? And I think Jesus' prayers are going to be answered someday. So what does he say? That they may know that you sent me. Do you ever wonder why it's so important for Jesus to know that he was sent by God? I mean, it's all over the Gospel of John. This word for sent is used more in the Gospel of John than anywhere else in the Bible. And you know the chapter that is used most frequently? John 17. This is so important that we know why Jesus was sent. Do you know why that's so important? The answer is, why was Jesus sent? He was sent to die for sin. 1 Corinthians 15, 3. Christ died for our sins, and he rose to give us new life. This is why Jesus was sent. This is the gospel. It's the core of it all. And right after this, John 18, Jesus is arrested and begins his, uh, his path to crucifixion. So this is why it's so important that we all know that he says time and time, they believe that you sent me, that the world may believe that you sent me to die for sin. Why? The last thing he says, so that the world may know that you loved them even as you loved me. Now, sit with that. Capture the magnitude of what this is saying. Back in John 15, verse 9, he said something similar. Jesus is saying that God loves you with the same intensity that God loves God. So what did you just say? God loves you with the same intensity that God the Father loves God the Son. That you may know, not just intellectually know, that you may experience, that you may know in your whole being that God ferociously loves you with the same love that exists within the Trinity. That is a magnificent statement. It's astounding that that would be true. That God would love you that much. That God would love me that much with that kind of affection and strength. It's John 3, 16 and 17, right? When the most popular verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. This is God's love. This is the end goal. It's what it's all about. If we could be unified in such a way that the world would believe that Jesus was sent, that they would experience and that we would experience the magnitude of God's love, that is the power to change the world. It's been changing the world for 2,000 years. This is what Jesus is praying for. And so how can we hope to achieve this kind of unity? He says it in the last verse. This is his promise, verse 26 here. I made known to them your name, and I will continue. I will continue to make it known. Why? 
that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I myself will be in them. This is the promise. This is John 13 to 16. This is union with Christ. He says it elsewhere. I will never leave you or forsake you. I will be with you to the end of the age. This God-sized love and God-sized presence. And so how do we, if that's true, and this is Jesus' prayers, how do we cultivate that kind of experience? I want to suggest to you it begins with cultivating a prayer life that is talking to God all throughout our day. This is what Jesus is inviting us into. The same relationship I have with my father, the same way you heard me pray and do the works that the father was doing, you're invited into that. You can have that. That's what John 13 to 16 was about. And so what if your greatest need is prayer? What if your greatest power is also prayer? I want to close and share this story with you. That is, this is, a, this is a, an amazing answer to prayer. And so it comes from Craig Keener's book, Miracles Today. Um, and so let me, let me just read this to you. He says, let me tell you about Barbara Kaminsky-Snyder. When she was a teenager, doctors diagnosed Barbara with multiple sclerosis, MS. Although MS can come in milder forms, Barbara's condition deteriorated quickly. One day, she looked out the hospital One day, she looked out the hospital window. With all her heart, she wished that she would just be a regular person, able to drive and live a normal life. Yet, no matter what, Barbara had decided that she was totally in love with the Lord. He was her reason to live. From the age of 15 to the age of 31, Barbara spent three-quarters of her life in the hospital. The rest of the time, she was being cared for at home. She had chronic pulmonary disease with frequent infections, pneumonia, and pneumonia. A surgeon, Dr. Harold Adolph, describes her condition toward the end of her suffering. He says this, Barbara was one of the most hopelessly ill patients I ever saw. She was diagnosed at the Mayo Clinic as having multiple sclerosis. She had been admitted to the local hospital seven times in the year that I first was asked to see her. Each time, she was expected to die. One diaphragm was completely paralyzed so that the lung was non-functional, and the other worked less than 50%. She had a a tracheotomy tube in her neck for breathing, always required oxygen, and could speak only in short sentences because she easily became breathless. Her abdomen was swollen because the muscles in her intestines did not work, nor would her bladder function. She had not been able to walk for seven years. Her hand and arm movements were poorly coordinated, and she was blind except for two small areas in each eye. She was hooked up to various machines to help her breathe and eat and use the bathroom. Barbara needed so much care that when she was, when she was home, a nurse or nurse's aide remained with her most of the time, In her words, she was wrapped up like a pretzel, her feet pointed down, unable to rest flat against the floor, even had someone tried to stand her up. Her arms remained tight against her chest, her hands curled up against the inside of her wrist. Thomas Marshall had assumed her palliative care in what appeared to be the final week of her life. He sadly explained to the family that the next infection would likely kill her, and everyone agreed not to prolong her suffering with any further hospitalization or by attempting resuscitation with CPR. Unable to free herself from her pretzel position or even to breathe normally, Barbara felt trapped inside her own body. Now, after 16 years of physical deterioration, doctors had sent her home from the hospital one last time. They had regretfully warned her parents, it's unlikely that she'll survive long enough for us to see her again. Now, for more than four years, Barbara had not been able to even visit her Wesleyan church in Wheaton, Illinois. 
Nevertheless, her faithful pastor visited her day, uh, every day during that time. Now it was Pentecost Sunday, June 7th, 1981, and two friends from her church visited her after the morning worship service. This time they showed up laden with cards and letters. Someone had called in a prayer request about her to the local Christian radio station. And now 450 letters came to her in care of her church, which were prayers for her healing. As her friends began reading the, newsletters, uh, the new letters to her, she suddenly heard a booming, authoritative voice over her left shoulder. It said, My child, get up and walk. Because of the breathing tube, she could speak only when someone plugged a hole in her neck. They would do this whenever she looked agitated, and her friends, seeing her current agitation, plugged the hole. God just told me to get up and walk, she gasped. Her friends grew quiet, but Barbara insisted, Go get my family, she ordered urgently. Feeling her excitement, they dashed out of the room to find her family. The sense of urgency in Barbara's heart suddenly became too intense for her to wait for their return. Normally, it would take two people about two minutes to get her out of bed. They would slide her onto a lapboard and then into a chair. But now she did not have time to ponder what, she, what should have been impossible for her. Abruptly, she jumped out of bed toward the direction of the voice. Equally abruptly, she found herself standing. Her feet had become too deformed even to wear slippers, but now she found them flat on the ground. Then she noticed that her hands were both open at her sides. Like anyone else's, what struck her next was that she could see her hands and feet. She was no longer blind. Freeing herself from the connected apparatus, she disconnected her tracheostomy tube from the oxygen tank and fastened the catheter bags to her clothes with safety pins. At this point, her friends returned to the room. As they caught each other's eyes, her friends started screaming and jumping. Her mother came running behind them, assuming from her friend's urgent summons that something terrible had happened to Barbara. As Barbara's mother burst into the room, however, she froze, transfixed with amazement. Not only was Barbara healed from her condition, beyond possible natural explanation, her muscles were not even atrophied as they normally would have been from years of non-use. Barbara, you have calves again, her mother exclaimed. Barbara examined her own legs with astonishment. Dad, Barbara now shouted. Just a minute, he called. He had not heard the cause of the commotion. Since Barbara had become unable to speak normally, her father assumed that it was her sister calling him. But Barbara realized that she no longer had to wait for him to come to her. She raced down the wheelchair ramp. Finally, Barbara's dad spotted her. Overcome with joy, he waltzed Barbara around the room, her catheter bag still attached to her clothes. Soon she recounts, she ran out and hit the blacktop of that 93 degree sunny weather, sunny day with feet that could now feel. What a dance I did as I inhaled the fragrant summer air and saw sights I had so missed. Jesus was already Barbara's reason to live, but by his healing, he had enabled her to live a normal life. The next day, Barbara visited her doctor's office. Dr. Marshall recounts his feelings when in the hallway of his medical office, he first saw Barbara walking toward him. I thought I was seeing an apparition. Here was my patient who was not expected to live another week, totally cured. Over the next three and a half hours, she saw virtually every doctor in the office. Dr. Marshall reports that none, that none of his colleagues had ever seen anything like this before. X-rays showed that even her collapsed lung was no longer collapsed. He removed all the tubes that, he, that could be removed without surgery. Barbara reports his verdict that day. I'll be the first to tell you, you're completely healed. I can also tell you that this is medically impossible. Dr. Adolf remarks that her breathing was normal. Her diaphragms were functioning normally. He reconnected her bowel, which was now functional. Her only health problem involved some complications from this new operation. 
Dr. Marshall deems it a rare privilege to observe the hand of God performing a true miracle. And Dr. Adolph notes that both Barbara and he knew who had healed her. Barbara was now, had now lived for 35 years with no recurrence of her illness. She subsequently married a minister and feels called to serving uh, others in need. December 2015, I first interviewed Barbara Kaminsky Snyder. Even though it was now many years from her healing, Barbara still brimmed with excitement as she shared her story. This is one powerful story of united prayer from a good father. Is God always going to do that? No. But we ask, and my heart for this church is that we would begin to pray in a fashion like this and see God move in powerful ways because he's a good father. We would see this future kingdom of heaven breaking into now. And so this is my call for us to pour into prayer, to be united to prayer, to cultivate a prayer life, that we would tell stories like this and that Jesus would be glorified and the watching world would believe that Jesus was sent for them and they would know the love of God. Would you stand as I pray for us? Father, we thank you for the healing of Barbara. It's amazing. It's miraculous. And God, we long to to see you move in those ways, God. But we know ultimately that's not what it's about. It's about you. It's about knowing your love. It's about your gospel. It's about the reason you were sent. And God, I think you do things like this to bring people to faith, to show them that you're real, that you're here, that you love them. And so God, all we can do is ask. And so we want to ask you, Lord. I want to ask for healing again in this room right now. I know those who are in desperate need of healing. And so, God, we ask you because you're good and you told us to keep on asking. And so we keep asking, Lord, would you heal those in this room in need of healing and those outside of this room that we may glorify you and testify to you and say, look how great God is. But God, we, we love you all the same. And I ask most that we would know your love exponentially more than we do now. Holy Spirit, come and minister to us tonight. We're going to continue to worship through song and prayer. And God, we give you this time and we love you and we're so thankful that you're real, that you're here and you are the resurrected King. In your name, Jesus, and by your spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to the One Hope Church podcast. We encourage you to share what you've heard in conversation with family, friends, classmates, and coworkers. To connect with us or learn more, visit wehaveonehope.com.